Welcome to Connecting with Coincidence with psychiatrist Bernard David Beitman, MD. Dr. Beitman is the founder of the Coincidence Project. The project encourages people like you to tell each other coincidence stories. To learn more about Dr. Beitman's work, put Connecting with Coincidence in your web browser. You'll find his book, his Psychology Today blog, and the interviews from this podcast. And now your host, Bernard Beitman, MD. Welcome to Connecting with Coincidence. I am your host, Bernard Beitman, MD. Yeah, I'm a psychiatrist. I study the mind and the brain in their physical, cultural context. Meaningful coincidences like synchronicity and serendipity provide clues to how our minds and brains connect deeply to our bodies, other people, nature, and our environment. Meaningful coincidences occur in all aspects of human life. You need to just expect them, and that's part of what we're doing here, and that's what my guests will help you do. It's like they're everywhere, they're everywhere, and they're not for everybody all the time, but they're around, so just pay attention, and you'll hear about a particular kind that uh, Chris Mackey calls propinquity, and maybe you'll become more sensitive to that particular kind of synchronicity. And you can pre-order my book on meaningful coincidences, which is gonna come out in September in the URL, I hope that appears below. We're gonna see this the first time we're doing this. Uh, it's full title is Meaningful Coincidences, How and Why Synchronicity and Serendipity Happen. And the links will be underneath here or at least in the text below this email, before this, this presentation. In 2006, while I was nearing the time to step down from being chair of psychiatry at the University of Missouri, I assembled a group of researchers to answer this question. How common are weird coincidences? I mean, I had a bunch of them. I knew people who did, but I wanted to get some data. So we developed the Weird Coincidence Survey, distributed to the faculty, staff, and students at the University of Missouri. And yes, <laughs> We now had data that weird coincidences commonly occur. We wrote several papers on this and related ideas, but where do you get these papers published? No self-respecting psychiatric journal would publish these new ideas, or would they? In those days of paper and mail, most psychiatrists in the United States received at no cost a continuing education journal called Psychiatric Annals. Financial support came from many different pharmaceutical companies who of course placed their ads for their new drugs in different places in each issue. I contacted the editor who was not a psychiatrist and lo and behold, she was interested in synchronicity. She facilitated two issues of psychiatric annals devoted to meaningful coincidences. The second issue contained three articles by psychiatrists who used our weird coincidence survey in their own research studies, helping to confirm how common they are and some characteristics of them. Eventually she was replaced 
partly because these coincidence issues were not exactly the standard subjects of continuing psychiatric education, like treating depression and treating schizophrenia. Looks like I hit another right time, right place serendipity on this one. Our guest today is Chris Mackey. Chris is a clinical and counseling psychologist and a fellow of the Australian Psychological Society with over 40 years psychotherapy experience gained at both the public and private mental health centers. He is principal psychologist at Chris Mackey and Associates in Geelong, Australia. Chris has presented at numerous national and international scientific conferences over the past 20 years, 25 years, on such subjects as psychological therapy for anxiety, depression, trauma, and drawing on synchronicity in psychotherapy. Chris is the author of The Positive Psychology of Synchronicity, Enhance Your Mental Health with the Power of Coincidence released internationally by Watkins Publishing in 2019. Hey, Chris, glad to see you. Good to be with you, Penny. <laughs> good, to see you. good to be with you. So here we are. Here we are looking at each other. Well, we do see each other on a kind of regular basis, uh, every maybe every month at the Coincidence Ambassador meetings, which are really fun for both of us. I want this audience to know that this guy is in Australia and he has to get up at 3 a.m. for our 11 a.m. meeting uh, in, in Eastern time, U.S. time. And he's doing it. And, you know, he doesn't even look that tired when he's doing it. Right now it's 6 a.m. in Australia and look at him. He looks like he's glowing. I mean, I don't know how he does it, but he does it. And I'm so glad that you do, Chris, because you're such a valuable, valuable member of the Coincidence Ambassador and the Coincidence Project in general. Uh, well, it's such a, such a terrific part, uh, such a terrific group to be part of, Bernie. And uh, when those of us are interested in this subject, we often have a passion for it. So connect with, connecting with like-minded people across the world is a wonderful thing. A wonderful thing. And uh, we're getting going too. How is it good for you to be connecting with like-minded people? How has that helped you particularly? Well, I think that when you start talking about synchronicity, it's like coming out to people. It's this mystical kind of thing, and often people uh, don't expect that from a clinical psychologist, especially one who you know, does a bit of clinical research and things like that. And so often people, I think, are taught to be very sceptical about anything that can't be easily rationally explained. And so you often encounter that kind of questioning. But to come across a like-minded group, it just gives that much more assurance and encouragement. And what I find, I imagine that you do as well, that I talk with people quite easily in all walks of life now, very easily about synchronicity. I suppose I have done for some time. And you realise how many people relate to it. And that's part of our Coincidence Ambassadors group, isn't it? It's encouraging people to tell stories about synchronicity because they're actually so common in so many people's experience, but often there might be a bit of inhibition talking about these things uh, because people are wary. But there's that other element that when people have 
dare I say that, more sophisticated or depth of knowledge or understanding just because of focusing on it so much. All of those in our group do have that passionate interest. So there's, there are more levels, again, that come out in our discussions. Yeah. Yeah. And we're, and we're trying to have everybody in the group do, and they are, what you do, which is bring up uh, uh, meaningful coincidences in your daily life. You talk with people about them as well as that you see them. Uh, how did you get interested in uh, synchronicity, Chris? Well, I started off as a real skeptic. And so I went to a workshop in my early mid-20s called a wellness workshop. There's a fellow called John Travis presenting on something of a spiritual or transpersonal model. I was surprised because he came from John Hopkins University, he had medical training, but it's like he was wearing this long caftan, which actually annoyed me at the time. I thought, what's he trying to convey here? He showed us pictures of, I called it Jonathan Livingston Seagull because there's this nice little bird on the screen. And I'm wondering, why aren't these adults around just challenging this guy? And at the end of this half-day workshop, He said to me, look, I can tell that you're somewhat sceptical, but you might be interested to know a number of scientists and physicists are actually turning a little bit more to spirituality and religion. You might be interested in this book called The Aquarian Conspiracy. Well, that created some cognitive dissonance in me. I thought any scientist worth their salt would dismiss anything that was as bunkum as, as that. But I thought I'll read this book. And I got to a section about 60 pages in. And it talked about synchronicity, and then I experienced an explosion of synchronicity in my own life, like number synchronicity, told other friends about it. My friend Ian, who shared a house, said, look, you wouldn't believe this. Now Now, I go to ring. Chris, before you continue with those stories, uh, what's fascinating to me is that you read it in the middle, read about synchronicity in the middle of this book, The Aquarian Conspiracy, and it's like it popped the lid off of your synchronicity experiences, just like suddenly they were all there. How do you understand that? Well, well, as they say, uh, my karma ran over my dogma. And uh, so just, I'm a CBT therapist. You go on experience, you go on evidence. There's too much evidence stacking up. (laughs) Your karma ran over your dogma. (laughs) I always talk about psychotherapy schools as dogma eats dogma, as they argue with each other. So I haven't heard your karma got run over, but your dogma got run over by your karma. That's a good one. But still, that doesn't get to the kind of explanations that you and I like, mm. is that, yeah, that's a wonderful metaphor. Uh, you are karmatically sent here to do something with synchronicity and you have and you are and you will Hmm. but this kind of uh like there's a steam thing growing on in your head and you and you kind of like reading that popped it open is another metaphor that i was thinking about what's the metaphor that or how do you understand reading this book after hearing it from this guy how did how did that have it all come out for you well, I would say it blew me away. That's an expression I would use. It was just remarkable. It was actually particularly seeing the repeated number six 
in relation to, uh, well, dating my girlfriend who became my wife. It just came up all the time. Um, if we went to, if we stayed in a hotel on an interstate holiday, so often it was the sixth room and the sixth floor, like room 66 or 606. Funnily enough, I wrote about that in my book and the, the next hotel room we stayed in, 300 rooms in this hotel, it was room 606. But this was happening so much at the time, it was becoming comical, like a shared joke. I heard of it once. I was called the synchronicity matchmaker. Funnily enough, in a footnote in the book, footnote number 66. It's just this recurring thing just happens too often to be chance in my view. Well, yeah. Uh, and it, happen it happens to you. And as we go along, we're going to we're going to demonstrate by your own experience how you have a particular kind of uh, coincidence that you tend to uh, involve yourself with. But that's how you got started. Mm. Uh, and one of the fun things you did was have um, a birthday party. And at this birthday party of like 100 people of your closest friends, I'm imagining, because uh, <laughs> you're a friendly guy, uh, is like, you ask them each to contribute to a jar, uh, a synchronicity story. And what happened? Well, it was quite remarkable. So about 39, around 40%, oh, he made about 40% of people acknowledge experiencing synchronicity. Funnily enough, 39 out of the 100 actually wrote a story or a card. And delightful. I've actually got it back here. Uh, Bernie, as you can see, lots of different kind of notes and cards and things like that. And it was quite remarkable, some of the stories in it. Like one person said she had a dream of a school friend she hadn't seen for 20 years. The next day, he contacts her out of the blue because he ran into her husband who visited him when he was um, uh, going to his, his business. They met through work. And so it turned out this friend had some struggles in their life and she was able to be a support with this fellow as he was going through a separation. So just the odds of that seemed remarkable or three people who uh, enjoyed yachting. They were staying in a yacht club, so three couples at a barbecue. They started chatting. They realised that they were three people linked to the only three families who'd lived in a particular house in Geelong for 90 years. So look out at these yachts in a little triangle out in the water and seeing this triangle in their own lives of that kind of connection that only came up sort of through random com uh, conversation. Like quite unlikely things. Another friend, he travels through America. Someone says, oh, you're going to America on the way to England. Hey, you might run into this fellow who, who uh, is a, uh, works in the admin team at our university. He thinks, well, I won't likely recognise that person. I don't even know what they look like. Did run, in, run into him. Went to a, a, a Washington uh, backpackers in Washington, D.C., one other person in the kitchen. They start having a chat. Where do you come from? Geelong. Soon enough, he says, you're not so-and-so, are you? Yes, that's the particular guy. So these are, again, quite uncommon chances. And, and so this is just a, a, a collection of people. Many of my friends are GPs and trying to be sceptics. 
Uh, it's not like my friends are all into synchronicity that I would have thought. So I think, well, there's a more of this around than people are often aware of. Well, uh, in case anybody out there didn't notice, uh, I'll help you notice there was a particular theme <laughs> to some of the stories that uh, Chris just told us. Uh, and uh, I'm, I, get, I get fascinated by uh, specialization in synchronicity. The, some people just do this versus that kind of thing. And Chris has come up with, uh, through these stories here, as he'll demonstrate even more, but the story's illustrated too, uh, something that you call, what is that, Chris? Propinquity. Propinquity. So, Isn't that some yes. kind of Latin name or something? Yes, so propinquity technically means nearness. And if you Google propinquity, you'll tend to come up with a concept of nearness physically, like in certain research that shows if people live nearby, they're more likely to come in contact with each other. For example, if people are in an apartment block and they live near the lift, then they're more likely to connect with people with different floors who live near the lift than people who live further away. So it's like a physical nearness. But propinquity in a synchronicity sense, is like a psychological nearness or connection. And so how this came up is when I was writing about synchronicity, a couple of people that I mentioned it to randomly, there might have been a, a seamstress, said, look, you should look into propinquity. Another fellow said, oh, look, you might look into propinquity, meaning, say, thinking of someone that you haven't seen for a long time, and then they connect they contact you straight afterwards, phone you, email them, you run into them. So I was very interested that one of these two fellows who said to me, oh, you should look into propinquity. Uh, it reminded me of the first time I learned about propinquity was that fellow I shared a house with when I'm experiencing all these number sixes. He said, hey, it's just started happening. When I go to ring someone, they ring me just when I'm about to ring them, even if it's people I haven't spoken to for three months. Now, I used those as two of the three examples of propinquity in my book. It turned out 25 years earlier, these two people, Cameron and Ian, had shared a house together. I knew Cameron as someone who came from New Zealand. I knew of Ian who'd returned from America to live in Geelong. They came from very different backgrounds as far as I knew. Two of my three examples of propinquity in the book, they shared a house with each other 25 years earlier. I think, well, propinquity again. You were offered this term by other two other people. That, yes. that's, that's what amazes me here, that you didn't come up with it on your own. They said you should think about propinquity, and that's a propinquity. <laughs> that's, that's somehow so cool that you got people to like, without asking them to label the kind of synchronicity that marks you as this is, the, this is what you do, and not only, but this is what you do. That's a really interesting observation. And funnily enough, I hadn't thought of it that way because when these two people said about propinquity to me, I thought, oh, that just must be a thing. And funnily enough, partly leading up to today, I thought, well, I should look up propinquity more on Google and, and that. And I thought, well, 
It's almost like a mistake to refer to it as propinquity because it's so often applied to this physical nearness. So it might be a distortion of the term. But, hey, it fits so beautifully, this idea of propinquity, connection and nearness. And I wonder if there's something, well, there's almost something of the trickster in that. I know that you talked recently with David Strabler about the trickster. Well, it's it's funnily enough, it's it's like um, taking a concept that seems to fit so well, rather than it being a mistake. Hey, I think it it fits. I think that I think that's psychological propinquity. Now, one one of the things that one of the things that the trickster does, uh, and David likes to get into this, is like break boundaries. It mm. break the trickster breaks definitions up as one thing so we we have to keep evolving i remember a, a time when uh uh cuisine was just at fancy restaurants now it's like uh, it's every it's, it's a it's used a lot of different places words evolve and they have to evolve so your trickstering with your friends helped you expand the definition mm-hmm. of a word that was really right for what you are describing and it in it implies it implies a kind of psychic nearness right isn't that what you're suggesting absolutely and the thing that to me is well again very interesting following on from that trickster idea is then it seems to lead to a connection with some other kind of deep understanding, and particularly in physics, the notion of entanglement. I think propinquity is like psychic entanglement. So what entanglement is in physics is where you have, say, uh, two electrons that interact with each other, uh, two molecules, and you separate them technically from one side of the universe to the other, and they act like a twin system. If something shifts the spin on one instantaneously, then something shifts the complementary spin on the other. So this is what Einstein referred to as spooky action at a distance, saying this, this can't be true. But it's since been proved to be true in I understand in experiments in the 1960s and 70s. Don't know how they proved it. It's the weirdest thing in physics, this idea of entanglement. It suggests that everything's connected with everything else. And I think, well, if stuff, if material things can be connected instantaneously at a distance, why not people's minds? And so propinquity seems to be this, well, embodiment of psychic entanglement. It's the same kind of concept. And if it happens in one area of life and science, hey, why not another? Well, I'm a bit of a concrete kind of guy. and. Uh... I don't think people are electrons. Uh, I, I, I don't think they're photons. I think there's a, a, a big shift to go from an electron where we're made out of uh, into like human beings. I find that to be more of a metaphor and it's a little bit like uh, a lot of other things. It's, a, it's clear that this entanglement uh, based on physics um, appeals to the, your way of thinking. And it appeals to lots of people's ways of thinking. And uh, I put it in uh, my first book as a possible way of thinking. I, I, I don't go with that quite so much anymore, but it's nice to have uh, a kind of 
in real science like physics a metaphor that might actually mean something but the gap between the electrons and the photons and the human minds is still a little of a bit of a leap for me but there, there is some kind of connection and that nearness is what i'm fascinated with is propinquity means nearness and there's a kind of psychic nearness which you we'll use the word entanglement for, but I wonder, have you thought of any other ways of looking at this, uh, this psychic nearness um, that? I think well, certainly it seems to relate at times to telepathy. And the most classic example of that that I heard was when we had callers ring up to a radio program. For a few years, we had a, a fortnightly, every couple of weeks, a radio program called Talking Synchronicity. And in Geelong, we're just, just a mainstream commercial radio station. Hey, ring up and tell us your stories. I think that was so, the first time I heard from you. Um, <laughs> yes, it was. Because, because I, was, I was doing my podcast and I said, hey, we're the only ones in the world doing a synchronicity podcast or a radio show. And then I get this from down under, I get this thing. No, you're not. <laughs> I, I, I thought that was fantastic. I've got these indignant anonymous champions out there, Bernie, sort of uh, uh, spruiking, spruiking for our show. I thought that was fantastic. But, uh, but one of these phone calls that was the most remarkable is this um, lady rang up and she said she was walking with a friend into a supermarket and there was a public telephone uh, outside the supermarket. They still existed in those days. And as she walked past, the phone rang, just randomly rang this public phone. And she just said to a friend as a joke, oh, that'll be for me. <laughs> she picks up the receiver and then she's having a chat. Her friend's thinking, well, what, what's happening here? She's still chatting to this other, other, what's going on? And afterwards, she puts down the receiver and the friend says, what's going on? She said, oh, that was my best friend. It's just that she rang the wrong number. Well, what are the odds of that? Ten seconds before, ten seconds after, then that wouldn't have happened. There's something weird happening with the timing of the phone call. But what does this mean that she said just off the top of her head, oh, that'll be for me? It's just remarkable. And um, but one of the things I find intriguing is in science and psychology, we take uh, something as, as supported by the evidence. If there's less than one in 20 chance of, of that turning out to be true, it's P is less than 0.05, the probability less than 0.05. The null hypothesis is, no, it's just random chance. Well, what are, the, what are the chances of that being random chance? I think we'd have to be gullible to think that nothing's going on there. But I think there was a telepathic aspect to that as well, it seems to me. And what I do is uh, hear stories like that, walking by the old telephone booth, and see if I've heard them before. And I have. Uh, mm. I, I, one was a kid, it's your mother. She's telling you to come home. As the friend picked up the phone and said, is Johnny there yet? <laughs> and other ones, it's important for me in the way I do this is to collect subtypes. Mm -hmm. And so you've added to now to this subtype of walking by the old phone booth and knowing that it's uh, for you or somehow related. And I was talking to a guy yesterday who, who says that uh, he thinks it's precognition that you're uh, you're you're imagining it 
uh, and then it happens. Uh, whatever it is, uh, telepathy and precognition, pre uh, these are hard to separate out, but they're, these are evidence of our minds not being separate from our environment. And that's and that we are, our minds are connected to each other in some way. And that's the way I tend to think about it. And entanglement is a way of saying that. Um, but that's but those stories are low probability. And you know how what the, what the statisticians say about that. Do you? I mean, do you? Yes. Well, well uh, again, the, the more that something improbable happens, the more there is likely some pattern there. And and uh, and if I can mention one other story, when I say about the friend who who found that person in Washington D.C., he didn't know. Well, he, his his wife, a friend of ours, Yogi, said to another friend, "Oh, Lily, you're going to China." Chris is going to be China in China in those two weeks that you're there. You'll probably run into each other. Well, anyway, the last day, last afternoon, waiting for the bus to leave Shanghai, and I see this person. And the story about how we encountered each other was all the more remarkable because she's walking into this hotel in Shanghai. It's not the most obvious hotel and hundreds of hotels that Westerners would stay in. And she says to her friend, look, isn't it mind-boggling how many people there are living in China? What, what a population, a billion people. She said, look, you wouldn't believe this. A friend of mine said, oh, you'll probably run into uh, 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 Chris when, you, when you're over there. Yeah, as if. And she looks up and she says, oh, there he is. The exact time and the exact second she's saying how weird this is to a friend. Again, what are the chances of that? And that's following on from the Washington, D.C. story. I think the odds just keep on stacking up uh, against the null hypothesis. Well, of course they do. And uh, it becomes uh, part of the fun of it for me with you is that you collect these more than anybody that I know. Uh, these running into people accidentally in faraway places, for example, or in strange places. Um, which is uh, one of the items in the weird coincidence survey. Mm. It's like, uh, it, well, we had to drop it out. That's right. It wasn't high enough, but it was one of the things that was kind of common. Um, it, if you were to think about it with, uh, in addition to the entanglement idea mm. uh, and, and you, and like this one in, in Shanghai, mm. uh, how, how would you, what other ways would you have to think about explaining it? Okay. Now, this is where I think it's fair enough to be a bit open and speculate, and these things will unfold over quite a period of time with um, certainly greater minds than mine. But one of the things that struck me at one stage is reading about how chlorophyll works in a plant and sunlight. There's something that's related to quantum physics with this, apparently. It's like the shaft of light tries out a myriad of different kind of alternatives to see what's the best angle to hit the plates with the chlorophyll to maximise you know, the food to the plant, that kind of thing. And it, it's, it's as though it, it tries out all these different random pathways and says, oh, that's the best one. Now go for that. And the reality is that's how the shaft of light hits, just at that angle and all the rest of it. Now, I find it hard to get my head around that. 
But if there's any truth in that, I wonder, is there some kind of scenario or uh, a consciousness or energy or information where all sorts of scenarios are played out in terms of where we might be going in Shanghai, for example, whether we catch this bus or whether we walk along the street and whether there, there's all sorts of different paths that are almost tested out. And the one that has the greatest, if you like, meaning or weight or gravity or substance, uh, that's the one that gets chosen. That's the path that people end up going on and then they're more likely to run into each other through that. Now, I wouldn't pretend to understand much about how the chlorophyll works or whatever, but I can't help but think that there might be some kind of metaphor in there. And uh, I know someone, Sky Nelson Isaacs, uh, in our group, uh, who's a physicist, uh, he'd have more understanding of those things than I would. But I do wonder about something along those lines, that there's almost like a, a superposition, lots of different potential pathways or happenings. And then in the end, something gets selected out that somehow fits, is, is the most fitting. I, I, I think you just did it, but I think it'd be worthwhile explaining superposition because the term itself doesn't tell you much. My understanding of uh, superposition, superposition is that when we look at matter or observe something like an electron, it's more like a potential, a potential of energy, if you like. It could be here, it could be there, it could be somewhere else, it could be with different probabilities. It's more likely to be in a certain area, so to speak, than, a, than another. But it's once we actually observe something that's when it becomes fixed in place. That's when an electron can be determined to be in that precise location, for example. So, so the whole world, how it functions in terms of energy and matter, there's all this potential happening. And whether something is here, there, a bit next to it or whatever, is not fixed until we observe it, which psychologically I think is like our attitudes and our thinking we could think of something being like this or that, or we could think of it that way or have this take or perspective. But once we hold to a certain point of view, once we foreclose on that, that's where it is. And so, but, but certainly in terms of matter, superposition, I believe that's something that's demonstrated through physics and all the rest of it. Uh, it's when we observe things, that's when they become more fixed. That's um, also known as collapse of the wave function, where, where wave function refers mm. to uh, a, a algebraic equation or a calculus equa equation describing the movement of the electron. Uh, and that, that uh, movement, that, that, that formula begins to say that there are many different places for that electron to like manifest itself. And once the observation takes place, the wave function collapses. It's no longer there because the electron has become uh, more visible, at least under the physics ca capacities. And, and nobody knows really what the electron's doing. That's what got me because I looked into wave function. What is that? It's a description of what they think it's doing, but they don't really know what it's doing until they, it, till it's observed. So it, it, it looks like it's in the right direction. And you're talking about two major uh, findings in quantum physics that have affected 
uh, human thinking of the entanglement and the collapse of the wave function. And I, 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 that's a way of understanding um, what's happening with you and the propinquity. Um, now, these are, I think it's important for us to know how Chris Mackey thinks about these things. This is a very important part of all these discussions. But my question now is, why are you, Chris Mackey, experiencing not only a lot of propinquities in your own life, but also in the lives of all those people who are in that jar behind you? Uh, having half of the people who wrote stories were propinquity stories. So there's something about you being a propinquity uh, magnet or something. I mean, what, what, what about that? Yes, well, I suppose that uh, when I think of that, I, I realise I must be interested in connection. Like, I know I'm interested in connection, but yeah. I think that everybody's interested in connection. But maybe what you said earlier, the fact that I do get up regularly at, or, or semi-regularly at 3 o'clock in the morning means I'm probably a little bit more interested in connection than some other people in some ways. But, uh, yeah, it, it was my friend who said, look, when I go to ring someone, they ring me at the time. My friend Ian, I was sharing a house years ago I asked him well, what do you think that means and he said connection and I think that sums it up as much as anything else I think propinquity really is about that theme of connection and ultimately that we're all everyone's connected to everyone else it's like that Buddhist principle I'm not a particularly religious person I'd see myself as being spiritual rather than religious but I think a core of that kind of secular spirituality is an interest in connection that other our suffering other people's suffering is somewhat related and I suppose to some extent that's where I'm interested in being a psychologist as well there was a degree of suffering in my family that I wasn't obvious wasn't obvious to me when I was growing up more in retrospect I could see that but I suppose I'm someone who's in, who's interested in connection and alleviating people's suffering in some ways and um uh, yeah, but, but uh, connection, I think, is it, it adds fun to life. In positive psychology, we know the quality of our relationships is such a huge thing, would seem evident anyway, just in living life, that's important. But yeah, I, I would think that connection is at the core of it. Well, I believe there are degrees of, let me say, connection hunger, mm. connection thirst, connection tolerance. Uh, I tend to like to limit my interactions. I'm kind of one of those introverty kind of things. I like to think my own little thoughts and I like really good connections for me because I'm, you know, I'm kind of a sensitive person relative to a lot of other people, just sensitive to inputs. So there's, there's something about me that does not want to or relate very well to all the propinquities that you just like thrive on like a cat running rolling around in catnip or something you just you love it you love all these connections you said you you think they're wonderful for you they make you feel good 
Yes, and it, look, also, funnily enough, I, I think my personality would be more as, as an introvert as well. I enjoy solitary time over the years. One of my favourite activities is kayaking on my own on Cryo Bay. Funnily enough, now that I see fewer clients, then I'm more looking out for that connection with friends and others, whereas when I was seeing a lot of clients, I would especially enjoy solitary time. But look, I must admit, uh, Bernie, synchronicity is a topic that lights me up. And that's where particularly looking at connection around that theme as well, I find that there's a, there's a wonderful intellectual as well as an a, emotional and a social stimulation that goes with that. Well said, Chris. Well said. That's, that's, that's all very true to a very different degrees that we have. When, uh, one of one of the one of the things I ask of I ask myself uh, about listening to you is uh, you happen to live in Australia, Chris. Australia is a weird place to us who ain't in Australia. You know, I, I've I've been in China and uh, you know Shanghai and uh, Thailand, Bangkok, East Pakistan. Bangladesh then, um, but I've never set foot in in uh, Australia except through the Australian Open, kind of like, just like imagining there. But there's something really strange about all that seacoast uh, on the kind of eastern, southern side with all those beautiful beaches and beautiful opera house. And then the western side is so remote, it seems. Uh, it's like maybe there's something going on out there and there's isn't Perth over there in the West. Uh, it's like, and then you've got this huge back out there, out the huge outback. And you have this, this culture of Aboriginal thought that has to have permeated the culture that you are living in now, as much as the white man has destroyed aboriginal culture it's still coming back and there's still some of it there the walkabouts are amazing where walk around and can find food and water out there in the outback somehow they have an ability to be able to know their environment very well and be able to feel their way in their environment i can't help thinking that you are partly deriving your propinquity tendencies from that culture what do you think? Uh, it's a fascinating notion. I've often been intrigued by Aboriginal culture without having spent much time in the outback. And I just love the expression, the dream time. What a wonderful term that in itself evokes something. And some of the most wonderful stories that I've heard of that relate to propinquity include uh, I heard of an Aboriginal group who's looking to connect up with friends and they set off on this journey that's meant to be about three months hence that they would actually arrive at their destination. They're spending all this time walking on foot. They arrive at just the time to meet these other people that they're looking to catch up with. And it's almost like it's not the notion of, gosh, what a coincidence or what are you doing here? They just set off to meet these people and they found them at just the precise time. It suggests that there is some kind of uh, knowledge, experience that ties in this notion of, of anticipating connecting with others, some capacity. So, yes, I think I would have been influenced by that. And the other Australian characteristics, I think, being very pragmatic, 
having lived in a country where it seemed like there was so much open expanse and for people to look to, you know, uh, also, I suppose, build and create infrastructure and things like that. There was a lot of emphasis on being very pragmatic. And I think the other thing about Australia and Geelong in particular, which is one hour from Melbourne, it's kind of being linked to the mainstream, but being a step outside of that. I think like David Strabler and talking about the trickster, it's kind of like you can be on the fringes of different things. And I've always been, if you like, more comfortable on the fringes of, of different groups too, one foot in and one foot out, so to speak. And I think that Australia and Geelong has an element of that as well. You actually have a little bit more license sometimes to, in a pragmatic way, explore in different directions, maybe with a bit of a dreamlike basis to it. Hey, I'll, I'll go with all of that, Bernie. That's great. That's great. Uh, I, I, I could see that with Geelong on the map. Uh, it's like not Melbourne, but you can get to Melbourne, but it's still out toward the outback. And uh, of course, I love Alice Springs just because I was like, read about it and saw a, a series about Alice Springs. So I, I got a feel for what it's like there. And I read a book about a woman going on a trip on, on one of the walkabouts and what that experience was like for her. So I have a, and there's a, there's a, if you ever come to Columbia, Charlottesville, Virginia, we have an Aboriginal museum here. It's, a, it's got some great Aboriginal paintings and they rotate them around. And I, I like to go and just stand in front of some of them and see and feel what they're talking about uh, and what they're trying to say. And because they're maps, a lot of these, a lot of these, lot of these paintings are maps of the territory and it's just getting a feel for what it's like being there. Um, I, I asked some guy gave a presentation about taking pictures of birds on roofs uh, in Australia. And he was aboriginally born, but raised in the white culture. And he was trying, he was putting them together in a, a, a very harmonious, harmonious way as part of his, uh, his exhibition. Uh, so I asked him, um, what about black swans? Because I like black swans because there are no black swans, according to Europe in, uh, I don't know, a couple of centuries ago, but there's plenty of them in Australia. So he says, my next photo thing is going to be about black swans. So it was nice to be able to connect even further because uh, the black swans are going on rivers and they're not supposed to be black, but they are. Anyway, there's a lot of and a bunch of strange animals running around there besides kangaroos. Uh, but you and your propinquity and your story of the three month uh, hike, walk, walkabout to meet friends and they meet them at the right time. That's what I'm talking about, Chris. It seems to me that you are uh, an heir in the white culture of that kind of thinking that's right next door to you. Well, Bernie, look, I really appreciate you highlighting that. And you mentioned about Aboriginal painting and it just resonated so strongly with a, an experience I've had that relates to a topic that we've talked about a lot, the notion of psychosis compared to Satori or enlightened experiences and synchronicity. I used to look at this painting. I'd lie on a couch, listen to music and look at a painting on a wall in our lounge room. 
And after a while, it started to mean a lot of extra things to me. Funny enough, it did have images of bush potatoes that look like dendrites in the brain. There's that fractal idea of these different archetypal forms. But it spoke to me in different ways. It actually spoke to me in such different ways. I thought, this is remarkable. I can see such amazing things in this painting. I've got to tell someone. And I thought, I'm going to take this painting off the wall and go into the Geelong Advertiser, the local newspaper, and talk to a journalist there that I know and show him this painting and tell him what I see in it because it's like there's so much science and understanding this painting. I lugged it in. I spent one hour telling him what I saw in this painting. He humoured me, listened to it. Actually, he said, look, it's interesting. I got so much out of one painting. I walked outside to put the painting back in the car. This lady didn't know anything. She stopped and she said, lovely painting. We had this wonderful chat about it. Anyway, some friends heard that I'd like this painting into the Geelong Advertiser. Might I mention that they were GP trained and very rational friends. They said, Chris, you're going to ruin your reputation. Chris, you're becoming psychotic. We think you need medication. You're lugging these paintings around. You will absolutely trash your reputation if you do this. Funny enough, years later, I've been writing for the Geelong Advertiser for seven years every month, so I don't think I'll ruin my reputation too much. But my friends literally thought from a number of ways I was reacting at the time uh, that I was psychotic, and that was about the main evidence that they used. Uh, funnily enough, 15 years later, I see just as much truth in that painting now as I did then. I'll just have to pick the timing to convey about that. But that's one of the reasons, Bernie, that I'm interested in helping people differentiate between psychosis and satori or other kind of, dare I say, legitimate spiritual or transpersonal experiences from an Aboriginal painting. I am so glad that I got you to tell me that story uh, because I, I know you were accused of being psychotic. What you were doing was channeling Aboriginal thought. That, and you were open enough, and that painting had enough in it for you to be able to channel that kind of thinking, which is what the white people in Australia have tended to dampen, uh, and American Indians the same thing, that this openness, this connection with the greater spirit, something around us, the environment of which we're all a part, what I call the psychosphere, this mental atmosphere that we're in, that's dream time took pl takes place in that. And you were able to go into the painting and begin to experience an Aboriginal experience. And that is what you got in trouble about because you became aboriginal thinking and that was something that the people of white people of australia wanted to stamp out wow that's fascinating bernie because the essence of this painting that came across to me apart from the the dendrites if you like it was like there were it was a symmetrical painting and you could see it as one group of people coming this way and one group of people going that way divided by a line or a track. And at first I looked at it and it looks like these people are opposites. They're the opposite, one going this direction, one going that direction. In a sense, they couldn't be more different. And you think, wait a minute, no, they're exactly the same. It's symmetrical. You flip that around in your thinking, they're not opposites. They're exactly the same. 
And then there's that I-thou connection, the connection between people, which to me is the theme of propinquity. Ultimately, we're all connected. The divisions that we see are often so contrived, if you like, man-made in a sense. But I think there's that ultimate um, emotional, experience, uh, spiritual experience when we feel this connection with other people and some of the boundaries dissolve a little bit. That's just such an uplifting kind of feeling. And I think there's some of that feeling that comes across with propinquity. People do feel this natural extra connection with someone that they, they've thought to contact them and then that person contacts them at the same time. It doesn't have to be a family member. It could be someone that seems almost like a random connection, but we look into it a little bit more and often we find something extra, like those three yachts and people finding that they were connected with the, these family homes. that They all shared a particular family home. That, that happens to me at dance sometimes, somebody I don't know where we have a beautiful connection. And sometimes it's only just that. Uh, and usually it is just that. Sometimes it becomes something uh, more than that. So the ability we have to connect the way you love to connect and you love to connect in that deep, deep way. Uh, it's a marvelous quality of yours. And we're going to have to like disconnect our discussion in just a bit. But I want to go back to the painting you described where it looked like they were opposites, but they were the same. And that's a tough one for human beings to get, to have both the opposites and the same contained in the same place, to be both polarities and joined. It, it's human minds in the Western mind, particularly have the need to make polarities and have them be separate. And what you did that was crazy was to be able to see both and, to see separate and together. And that is crazy, Chris, in the, in the way we were thinking, people generally think, but synchronicity, meaningful coincidences, as I try to say in my book, exercise that ability to hold the polarities and the continuum together at the same time and you did that with that painting and that's that's just a marvelous story i want to thank you birdie i was just thinking what's happening with russia and ukraine is so relevant to this isn't it it's as though they're such different peoples or cultures and that's where it can all go haywire can't it when people don't lose sight of their connection <laughs> and that's what the coincidence project is intended to help heal mm -hmm. to recognize the and the, to illuminate the hidden currents that connect and unite us. That's what you're doing. That's what the Coincidence Project is intended to do for just the reasons you're talking about. We have to like recognize and enjoy them. But I want to end with one, one maybe a little um, wordplay thing. You know, I love the word G-long. I mean, <laughs> G and long gee it's a long way from home or something uh do you play with that word in g long or is it just not done funnily enough i haven't and i really enjoy wordplay but that's for, for one one reason i haven't uh i haven't had a play with that it'll probably be in the back of my mind now oh good because i like g as a well, our new coincident ambassador's name g uh and and g long is a long way from 
where from where tipperary or something yeah, from, right, yes. from melbourne it would be a long way from tipperary for sure <laughs> from melbourne and the outback but it's really close it's both it's a long way from each of those places gee it's a long way but they pull them together. So I think you're in a place of both and. I think that what G, G. Long looks like to me. It's a nice theme of propinquity, Bernie. It can seem like a long way away, but still close. That's right. That's right. Well, you're, you're bringing something to the whole project, Chris, with propinquity. And I thank you very, very much for staying with us. And right now, even more, I appreciate how uh, I think um, Aboriginal thinking has entered your mind and is able to then also get out into the world through you. So good work. Well, thank you so much. And I'll be thinking about that more. You've, you've taught me something extra about that. I'll be thinking about that for a while, that Aboriginal influence. Thank you, Bernie. You're welcome. This psychosphere is our mental atmosphere. Like a hologram of cosmic consciousness.